Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on TAP, we have Escape from New York, starring Kurt Russell, Lee Van Cleef, Harry Dean Stanton, Ernest Borgnine, Adrian Barbeau, and Isaac Hayes, directed by John Carpenter and written by John Carpenter and Nick Castle. Hey, this isn't James Bond. <laughs> Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. Uh, we've had a midweek adjustment. I remember last week we uh, promised a James Bond cast, but in lieu of No Time to Die, moving to November to take advantage of the global box office market. Wow, right? Yeah, we're going to kind of kind of do the same thing, and we'll come back to that in November. But, you know, with Quiet Place Part 2 coming out in two weeks, what better way than to tackle a cask, a film review cask all about the post-apocalypse, kind of, kind of calling this, the future doesn't look so bright. <laughs> We'd kicked around the idea on this a little bit, and it seemed the perfect time to do it with The Quiet Place 2 coming up. Let's roll it out right now, right? Exactly. So, yeah, let's kind of, you know, just tackle some of these films. And why don't you introduce what we're drinking today? I chose this in honor of our hero this week, and that would be our good friend Snake Plissken. I think Snake Plissken, if he was going to choose a specific liquor to drink, it would be Old Forester bourbon. This is literally your grandpa's medicine. <laughs> exactly. Right? Is, so, this, is this the bottled and bond? What do we got? Yeah, this is Old Forester 1897 bottled and bond. A um, little bit of a tribute there to 0072 and his uh, delay, shall we say. Excellent. Bottled and bond means that it's been in the barrel for two years. Okay. So I kind of metaphorically chose that too as we delayed the bond it just sort of fit excellent All cheers right. cheers mm -hmm. that's classic and pretty smooth bottled and bond sounds harsh but that's that's a nice drink it sure is before we get started, you know, just kind of, you know, what a great response this week to all our questions, you know, people wanting to see Frankenstein and the Wolfman back on the big screen. Um Shelby.snow on Instagram uh thought that our uh, your idea of Jekyll and Hyde and the, the the Gill Man seeing them back was a great idea and then um our buddy Nate uh thought a, a good kind of reimagining would be at the island of Dr. Moreau which I hadn't thought about that in a hot second but HG Wells again I'd like to see something like that again the monster making monsters oh great idea mm -hmm. look it's coming exactly the invisible man's a runaway hit mm-hmm We'll see what the numbers look like. It's only Saturday, so we'll see what the weekend kind of holds. Because it's got to fight off Onward this weekend and exactly the way back. We actually saw Onward last night. Mm -hmm. um, this is shocking because we never say this, but it was quite good. Excellent. Again, it's in the space where that's not my preferred go-to. Sure. But it's not often that I think Disney tailors a film towards brothers and fatherhood. Mm -hmm. And this movie is that in spades. Excellent. For everybody out there, if you're looking to see something that's worth your time this weekend and there's slim pickings, go. Check out Onward. Yeah, we're going to go see The Way Back this weekend, or today, as a matter of fact. So we'll see how Ben Affleck does playing himself <laughs> as a basketball coach. Exactly. Very little acting in this movie. Yeah. Catharsis, maybe. But thank you to all those listeners and all the feedback. And, you know, if you want to, you know, give your opinion on any of the questions, hit us up on Facebook and Instagram. Message us. Send us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. We'll... You know, love to engage with the audience. You know, we got a we got a pretty great audience listening to the show. So since we talked about it, I really do want to see what a new Gilman would look like. Yeah, that's such a rubber suit diving mm -hmm. apparatus done today. 
man, that could be cool. Could be pretty awesome. And we like water monsters, don't we? We sure do. Sharks are great. So are Gilman. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you're looking, you know, for Rice Smile films, you know, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, essentially anywhere there's podcasts. So whatever your platform is, find us, listen. We very much appreciate it. I think it's been a while since you've shot the email address out. Why don't you give them that to you real quick? Smile Productions at gmail.com. Beautiful. So I think time. Let's get right into our flight. Carpenter was in here scoring that for us, wasn't he? Exactly, yes. <laughs> I'm going to have you assemble a team, Jesse. So it's a dystopic future. And in that dystopic future, I'm going to allow you three compatriots that you feel would be the best choice to help you survive a dystopic scenario. Okay. Uh, of course, justification and all that coming. But so you, with three people of your choosing from dystopic futures that you'd like to bring along with you, and you can have the first crack. Excellent. Uh, I kind of approached this from, you know, when you said team, I kind of thought like, you know, like the Avengers and sure. like their lineup. So I kind of tried to think of those personalities, but my version with film characters. So Snake Plissken fits the anti-Captain America role of my team. Well said. And... um if I got to go for my Tony Stark, my wise ass, wisecracking, I'm actually going Bruce Campbell's Ash from the Evil Dead franchise. Oh, good. That's good. <laughs> I can't imagine, you know, the two of them, Ash and Snake Plissken, just going back and forth on conflicts of ideologies and just bullshit. That'd be great. I'd love to see that. Pre-decapitated hand or post-decapitated oh, hand? Oh, post. We need the chainsaw on the for hand. sure. Yeah. Uh, my Hulk, you know, hulking, just kind of monotone, just he's there to smash picking Jason Voorhees, you know, just put him in a scenario and he doesn't care. He just, he's just going to murder the muscle, <laughs> the muscle. Exactly. The, the mute muscle. Like yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's totally the Hulk. And then, um, I guess more like the, the more machine than man. So like maybe like the Thor aspect. So kind of godly, but not quite I, I go with me on this one, but I want RoboCop in there too. Uh, just kind of not Terminator, but you know, if you need someone to shoot someone in the dick, he's going to do it for you. <laughs> yeah, which is the quintessential place to end any dystopic predator. Exactly. So <laughs> there's my them procreating. So there's my team. And then, you know, just kind of outside of the three, if I had like the Nick Fury leading this group, mm-hmm. one Terrence Fletcher from Whiplash running this team of people. <laughs> Marches to the beat of his own drummer. There'd be so much yelling in this group. So good. <laughs> It's funny that your team that you assembled has the three <laughs> character roles that my team has too, which okay. would be technology, okay. muscle, and artillery. I can't wait to hear yours. Okay, so let's do the muscle thing first. Okay, I want Ben Richards. Give me Arnold from The Running Man. <laughs> Only Sub-Zero, now plain zero. How about that light bulb? <laughs> you know you want him. That's a good one, yeah. I'd love to see Ben Richards. Sure, and I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's my muscle. Okay. Let's do the artillery next. I'm going to go with Jeffrey Wright from The Hunger Games, BT. Oh, wow. I need that guy when there's nothing left and there's no infrastructure and the network's down. I need that guy to be able with like duct tape and a nickel to give me the internet. I need him. <laughs> duct tape and a nickel. You're MacGyver. Exactly. There you go. The MacGyver of uh, IT. Interesting. I think. And then the third one for my artillery. Okay. I went with Norman Reedus, Daryl Dixon. From Walking Dead. Got to be from the, I mean, the, the last name helps. Okay. But, uh. I think that's a great character, and I hate that show. Yeah. 
it's way beyond its expiration date. It's lifespan. But he's such a good character. Definitely. So you give me Ben Richards, BT, and Daryl Dixon with your three, and we'd have eight people that I feel we're pretty good with. It's pretty great. Yeah. I think I, I created more problems in my group than than like solutions. <laughs> There'll be some conflict in your group. <laughs> Definitely. But that's okay. Maybe we need a therapist. Yeah. He's our therapist. Our ther- Dr. Strange. <laughs> Dr. Strange. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's it, it's fun to kind of play around with these, you know, these post-apocalyptic scenarios. And in particular, in the film we're going to talk about today, kind of like, what does the world look like outside of this snapshot that we get to to see? But we spent some time the last couple of weeks talking about teams with the Kevin Bacon element and Hollow Man. Mm-hmm. And then what the dark world was going to be, which was team driven. And now again here with this, I think we're moving to... At some point, a, a team-driven cask, best teams assembled, maybe Magnificent Seven, something along those lines. Would yeah. be a lot of fun to do. Wild bunch. It? Oh, good, the yeah. wild bunch. Be pretty good. But Matt, I'm ready. I think time now more than ever. Let's do another cheers to cheers. the to the old forester. This is pretty good. I like this a lot. Mm-hmm. Slam dunk right there. Yeah, buddy. So let's get to happy hour time and a review breakdown of Escape from New York. The once great city of New York becomes the one maximum security prison for the entire country. A 50-foot containment wall is erected along the New Jersey shoreline, across the Harlem River, and down along the Brooklyn shoreline. It completely surrounds Manhattan Island. All bridges and waterways are mined. The United States police force, like an army, is encamped around the island. There are no guards inside the prison, only prisoners and the worlds they have made. The rules are simple. Once you go in, you don't come out. I feel like I've heard that voice before, Jesse. Yeah, who is that? Miss mm. Jamie Lee Curtis? Oh, well, you don't say. <laughs> Excellent. But pretty simple rules. Once you go in, you don't come out. I find this opening very interesting, and I want to start with the opening credits. And the first time we talked about a Carpenter film, this is the first thing we talked about, too, which is the musical score. Yeah. Very obvious him with his use of synthesizers and, you know, and, and off-centered beats. Matt, I think I told you right when this started, I think this is my favorite John Carpenter soundtrack. It Like, it rocks the whole way through. You can really tell that it's him. For those out there, you all should know Jesse does actually have John Carpenter's greatest hits. <laughs> You do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's it called? You have that CD or that? Oh, yeah, the anthology. There you go. Mm-hmm. So you really do have quite a proclivity mm-hmm. to recognizing his music. And certainly in this case, you know right away that it's John Carpenter scoring it. Exactly. And being an only child growing up, you know, the first instrument I learned was piano. So I had a keyboard, you know, in my house all the time. So sometimes I would just put these movies on and like, I knew how to read music, but I thought it was more fun to like listen to the thing and try to like play along by ear. So a lot of the songs in this film, I can actually play on the keyboard. And that was just kind of me and an afternoon just kind of playing around with the movie. I've known you for 20 years. Yeah. I didn't know you can play the piano. Exactly. Still. Mm-hmm. Man, that's great. Yeah. But I learned, you know, because that, that's why I love him so much as a filmmaker is john carpenter's escape from new york like he has a stamp of authority on this film written by john carpenter directed by music by john carpenter like he's so invested in his idea that he has such a shape over the tone of what this is going to look and sound like and you know and the pacing of it and i like filmmakers like that they're they're very well invested in their project the thing too he likes to do with his opening score is have 
an aerial version as we arrive to the location, whether it's Starman or the thing or this, we start with his score mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we see other entity, whether it be the helicopter blowing those two dudes up on the raft in this film yeah. or like in the thing that yeah. ate that ship that shows up right away. Starman has a similar beginning. Mm-hmm. You get the doo, 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 and then whatever entity is coming. <laughs> no, that's to awesome. That's a great opening. Tiny little earth yeah. or tiny little New York or middle mm-hmm. of nowhere, Antarctica. You mentioned this other thing about the about the credits real real quick, and you mentioned it like you can tell a Carpenter film when you see it now, like you're good at it. Like that. Uh, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, and Prince of Darkness all have the same font in the opening credits. How about that? So there's a uniformity there with his with his films, which that's awesome. I love that. Of all the things to talk about with Carpenter, which is his music and the way he casts his films... The other thing that I hope we get into, mm-hmm. well, I don't hope because we'll just do it, Yes, is what he does with a budget. Well, let's just talk about that right now. So budget for this film, a six. Cool, cool six million. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, I didn't know this, but you kind of gave it to me. Two mm-hmm. things happened here. We're starting to move to a bit more of iconic status in film for two people. Mm-hmm. That's Carpenter and Russell. Yes. Kurt Russell had, as you said earlier to me, off mic, a burgeoning career as Disney led characters. Well, did you know this? Did you know Walt Disney's last words when he died were Kurt Russell? No, I didn't. Yeah. What it means. No one knows how weird, but like he was like the first Disney star, like in the making, like child star. He had a contract with them at a young age, world's strongest man, the computer wore tennis shoes, all those Dexter Riley films. And that was kind of like his image at this point. So then he grows up to that, to Elvis on TV. Mm hmm. Directed by John Carpenter. That's what they meant. Mm-hmm. And then we move into I Need a Grown-Up Movie. Both of us need a grown-up movie. Now the studio, yeah. Avco Embassy wanted either Charles Bronson or Tommy Lee Jones. Charles Bronson would have been okay. Yeah. But this is just as good. Yeah. Better. And yeah, and Kersel, Kurt, Ru- Kurt Russell wanted this to yeah really shake that, that image up, which yeah you can't blame him. And you can see the studios testing out Carpenter a little bit. This is after Halloween, right? So Yeah, two, year, uh, two years after Halloween. Two years-ish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're letting the studio kind of put the or take the training wheels off of John Carpenter to see just how good he can be. And we get Kurt Russell in a first mature role that we can talk about. And I'm going to exclude that Elvis movie because that's sure. way different than what Kurt Russell ends up being. Definitely. 80s action icon. Mm-hmm. And also John Carpenter in a dystopic, semi-violent, I won't say science fictiony but a little bit science fictiony sort of future and he's going to be really good in that space too oh definitely such an important movie for both of their filmographies here as we're what we're growing up exactly Mm -hmm. and you know we talked about on rice mile films before about you know screenwriting and just kind of off the bat this is just i guess self-indulgent for a minute but one of the producers on this film is uh, a man named larry franco who went on to produce this the hulk uh a number of pretty big budget films in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Mr. Larry Franco has actually read some of our material, and that's not a joke. Gave it the thumbs up. Yeah, he liked it. So he's not in the space now of producing like he was back then, but that was like a dream come true for me. Jesse and I had written a script called Pig Nation that got semi-close. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, yeah. That's got read that's, by some people. It's a hard film to make, too. Yeah. Hard film to make. Yeah. But it's a comedy, mm-hmm. and Larry Franco was one of the earliest eyes to see that, yeah. and we both got the thumbs up, read the email, thoroughly enjoyed it, laughed out loud, 
So if nothing else, if that's our moment, our shining moment of screenwriting, that's a pretty good stamp of yeah, approval. Yeah, well, look, look there on that thing poster. His name's right there. Like, I've seen this guy's name my entire life. Yes, we have. So so that's pretty cool. But we talk about on screen, screenwriting a lot about high-concept film ideas, which is an idea that's so large that it essentially sells itself. So here's the idea of Escape from New York. The world's gone to total shit. And now we're moving all the derelicts and the the serial killers and the criminals of the United States to one place, Manhattan Island. We're going to wall it up. We're going to mine it. We're going to have a police force that, you know, is going to just, you know, monitor this situation on Liberty Island. And that's where everyone's going to go. And that's big alone. It's a single location idea of a film. I, I really like this, you know, Carpenter had a sense of, of a high concept idea, but with no money to play with. So if we're talking about high concept, usually there's three boxes you have to check. One is widely appealing. Second is unique. And third is you can see the whole movie in the pitch. And the pitch is a criminal must rescue the president from the dystopic state that he, that they are both trapped in Mm -hmm. can see the whole film. Exactly. And whammo, here we go. Movie gold. Exactly. Super high concept. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly. I mean, it, it, it's a little bit violent, and but I don't know who doesn't want to see this film. Mm-hmm. And even if maybe you are a female that is 35 years old and maybe it's not your cup of tea, Kurt Russell at this point in his life is probably your cup of tea. Exactly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, super high concept, well-crafted, well-written, and also like I said, the beginning of greatness for both of these, or I wouldn't maybe say beginning, but the second rung on the ladder of greatness for both of these. Sure. Because this is the stepping stone that leads to this film, the thing. The other thing that is really interesting about this film is of all of John Carpenter's um, mastery, (laughs) it also has to do with the involvement of his exes on set. (laughs) Exactly. Deborah Hill, Adrian Barbo, and then that gal that's in the, Restaurant. I forget what her name is. Season, no, that's Kurt, Kurt Russell's ex-wife. Kurt Russell's ex-wife. Mm-hmm. Season Hubley. But Deborah Hill and Adrian Barbeau, both mm-hmm. on set at the same time. Deborah Hill has computer voice, too, later in the film. Mm-hmm. I just wonder how galactically awkward that was <laughs> talk about conflict man <laughs> yeah that was yeah that, that would that, that'd be pretty uncomfortable to say the least yeah you think well one of the things just kind of right off the bat when we start out and the camera pulls up and we see New York but man like I would I would I choose a great matte painting background over CGI any day especially if you can blend it in with with the, your environment like properly New York looks great in this film, and they didn't really film a lot in New York. It was filmed mostly in St. Louis, Missouri. Look, to shut down New York to shoot it properly, that's $6 million right there. Yeah, Shoot your whole budget just to have the location for a shot. Yeah. Okay, so keep going. I interrupted you. No, yeah. But one of the matte artists, like the head matte painting artist on this film, is a director you might have heard of before, Mr. James Cameron. Who's that? Yeah, who's that guy? (laughs) One of his first major film uh, jobs was, you know, painting the backgrounds on this, which is really cool because uh, they because they look really well. And, you know, they filmed on Liberty Island for the initial base, but they're just on other backgrounds and, and setups here for the rest of the film. But another thing that Carpenter was able to do in this one was his casting. Like, this is a pretty great cast for 1981 for a six million dollar film. Would you tell me some of the people that are in this thing? Can we talk about Donald Pleasance? Okay, yeah, let's start Because I want to revisit this conversation <laughs> that we had off mic. 
Donald Pleasance is an interesting actor to me because I can't tell if he's good because he's so bad or if he's good because he's that good. The Loomis character in the original Halloween is worth the watch of the film in and of itself. Mm -hmm. We did that whole cast, so we don't have to go back and redo that film. Yeah. But he's a weirdo in that movie. Big time. Where he scares kids and just sort of stalks outside the Myers house mm -hmm. and is mm -hmm. like kind of ineffective as a cop, to be honest with you. Yeah, wait till we get to Halloween too. Okay, right. <laughs> so they choose to make him the president in this movie. Exactly. Uh, and the political landscape that we've had for the last 16 years, I guess would fit now with strangeness and egocentric sort of reactions. Yes. But he's an interesting cat in this movie. And the part where he decides to jump into an escape pod when Air Force One has been hijacked and is essentially flown into a building in New York City. Yeah. He escapes in an escape pod, but the first thing he says before he escapes is, yeah. God protect me. And then watch you, over you all and watch over you all. Yeah. Like as long as I'm good, then I hope you guys make it okay too. Exactly. And he delivers that in such a way that you might kind of say, wait a minute, that's not really what you should say. Even if you're thinking it president's kind of an asshole, but he <laughs> is kind of that yeah. all the time. He as Loomis, he's kind of that too. What was my response to you? I think I said, I, oh, I like, loved it. I was I like, like, how did they get him? Donald Pleasance is like who you go for when you like, can't get Alec Guinness, the B minus Alec Guinness. Yeah. Like and he brings that European gravitas of of acting, that very theatrical type of presence, which fit. You know, he played Blofeld in one of the Bond films. You uh, you you only live twice, and you know they wanted like Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing for Loomis. They both said no, so you fall back on Pleasance, and yeah, he's he brings something, but it's bizarre. Like it really is. I think it's bought off with what you told me. You're right, mm -hmm. and that was because he's. English or European, there's a sense of gravity to the way he delivers the lines, which I think creates a solemnness or a steadiness with these rather interesting moments that he continually emits or shows on screen. He's a weird character. That's just the first. Yeah. Okay, let's go to Adrian Barbeau for a minute. Okay. So John Carpenter's married to Deborah Hill. Right on the fog, he meets Adrian Barbeau. They start some tawdry, clandestine, blah 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 blah. End up being together in the middle of filming the movie. Mm -hmm. Why not? Mm -hmm. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so he brings her on set. And how do I say this? Adrian Barbeau has some talents that are on showcase in this film, mm -hmm. and I'm sure John Carpenter chose to do that also for the purposes of widely appealing. Yeah, that's his. Carefully as I can navigate that. <laughs> okay, so there's the second one. Okay. Okay, Kurt Russell, a great, say no more. We all know what Kurt Russell's going to become. The man. <laughs> the main, Lee Van Cleef. Yeah. Lee Van Cleef is the villain, Claude Rains, mm -hmm. like the villainous version of Claude Rains. Like from, his whole life. His whole life, from high noon to angel eyes, we can go on and on. Lee Van Cleef is kind of the villainous cop and who- he, And he represents authority very well in this film. Like the authority figure, the authority establishment of what this police force stands for in direct opposition of Pliskin. So the ground level then bad guy, the Duke, mm -hmm. Isaac Hayes? Mm -hmm. what? Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Mm -hmm. And the way they show him, they're all in on the Isaac Hayes effect too, aren't they? Exactly. You want some chandeliers on your car? I sure do. Me too. <laughs> and Disco ball hanging from the rearview mirror? Exactly. That's awesome. Looks and great on screen. It sure does. Who am I missing? Ernest Borgnine. Okay, you got it. Have at it. Yeah, cabbie. You know, 
This is an Academy Award winning actor, yeah, ladies for, and gentlemen. For Marty, yes. Right. And yeah, you got you just like another like eccentric actor, just kind of a part of this cast. So yeah, this is pretty good for a six million dollar film. As you're watching their names go by in the credit. Oh, and Harry Dean Stanton. I'll say Harry Dean Stanton too. Brain, yeah, exactly. This is one year post or two years post Alien. Like, yeah, it's a pretty great cast. And as you're watching their names go by in the credits, you're like, damn, damn, damn. One like, after this, another. This is pretty good for what we're playing with here. Even the voiceover of Jamie Lee Curtis to start the film. Exactly. It's an amazing cast. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, this, you know, scenario that we're in now. So now we got the president uh, behind enemy lines, so to speak, in uh, Manhattan, New York. There's a time code in here. And what I mentioned to you, too, is one of the things I like about this film is the amount of throwaway lines and scenarios that at the end of the day are important, but they're not important. The president's on his way to this Hartford summit where it's like the conference at Yalta where, you know, all the head leaders of the world of whatever this post-1997 world looks like ravaged by some war. And the novelization goes into more detail of it's post-World War III. The nation's been ravaged by this conflict. Um, there's some areas are still being uh, very heavily under, uh, like, nerve gas. The West Coast is known as no man's land. And they fought these big battles like Leningrad, like that's a battle of World War III. And they just throw away that line like nothing, like... You want to know more about it. So he's on the way to this conference. It's a big deal. We need him back. But we kind of know want to know why it's more of a big deal. You know what I mean? Yes, and to use Yalta and the summit that happens there and the ties to Leningrad and Stalingrad and World War II and then what's coming in this, which is the summit at... Um, Hartford. Summit <clears throat> at Hartford, mm-hmm. Connecticut. Yeah. Summit at Hartford. Summit at Hartford. Mm-hmm. World War Three is impending. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the president has begun his trip to this summit at Hartford Hartford, and his plane has been hijacked by some other, like you said, throwaway line, these terrorist organizations that are extremist there to represent the workers of the world who will unite in a very, you know, violent end. What's going up with that? Exactly. So (laughs) here's, what's great about this. We can talk about the subtext of characters that makes us interested and care about them. Mm -hmm. Or you can give us these, which does it a lot quicker Snake Plissken has an arrest at the Federal Reserve, which is apparently where he lost his eye too, right? It's so no, he he lost it in the war. The Federal Reserve is actually this bank robbing, and it's they filmed it. They filmed this sequence. It was going to open the film, and they cut it at the last at the last second. That might have been a mistake, mm. but nonetheless, mm-hmm. why is this well decorated hero robbing the reserve? Exactly. What happened at Leningrad? Mm-hmm. We go on and on and on with the story of these characters. What the heck is the president doing handcuffing himself into a briefcase over a cassette tape? Like they do a really good job of creating interest in the characters by showing, I mean, brief moments Mm -hmm. of backstory. Attention, you are now entering the debarkation area. No talking, no smoking. Follow the orange line to the processing area. The next scheduled departure to the prison is in two hours. You now have the option to terminate and be cremated on the premises. If you elect this option, notify the duty sergeant in your processing area. I'd probably choose cremation at this point. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Quick and dirty. So we kind of get to the the gist of the plot, um, you know, where, you know, Bob Halk, Lee Van Cleef brings Pliskin into his office and look, here's what's going on, war hero. Uh, the president's uh, behind enemy lines. And maybe I'll just let him say it instead. You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? 
I'm making you an offer. Bullshit. Straight, just like I said. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Get a new president. We're still at war, Pliskin. We need him alive. I don't give a fuck about your war or your president. Is that your answer? I'm thinking about it. Think hard. Why me? You flew the Gulf Fire over Leningrad. You know how to get in quiet. You're all I've got. I guess I go in one way or the other. Doesn't mean shit to me. Give me the paper. When you come out? Before. I told you I wasn't a fool, Buskin. You flew the Gulf fire over Leningrad. Like, I want to know that. I want to kind of see that. Or maybe I don't. I don't know. Like, you said it best. It's very intriguing. It really peppers this story because this is the story at this point right here. The other thing, too, is Pliskin goes behind enemy lines. Everyone knows him there. He's got such a rep. Boy. Mm-hmm. So, again, whatever happened over Leningrad, yeah. everybody seems to know him from that. Mm-hmm. And we don't. But that creates intrigue. Exactly. Well done. Really well, well written. done. Yep. So he gets in this Gulf Fire, and it's almost like a glider. So it's not a self-propelling um, aerial vehicle, but it has to be towed to a certain, and then just through. Um, it's kind of towed in the air, and then just let go. Yeah, through gravity. Yeah, these are real planes, and right. you just kind of glide your way, and you pick up momentum, and you go you dip down. And I think this is the coolest part of the movie. So, like on his little view screen, is this like three D like art of New York, like this his like radar spec spe- spectroscope. And the way they did, they, they couldn't do it in the computer at the time. So what they filmed an actual model with fluorescent tape on the buildings, and it looks incredible. It looks like it's computer rendered. And it's not. It's a scale model. The amount of time that would have had to go into taping models mm-hmm. would have been hours. A $15 million film probably could have done the job in the computer. A $6 million film has to think outside of the box and come up with a solution like this. So literally some guy sitting there with a roll of tape, taping it up, and it's got to be symmetrical because if it's crooked, it's going to look crooked and not digital. Are you kind of figuring out why I like Carpenter's films so much? Like as a young youth who in high school who wanted to make his own films and write scripts and do his own stuff with his friends, I couldn't think of a better role model to kind of look up to that had done the same things, big ideas, cool ideas, with nothing. Yeah, he inspired, you know, a pizza and six bucks is all you need to make a movie with you, and good for him, mm-hmm. and good for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I see that. Yeah. And the thing that we were talking about later in the film is whether it's a $6 million budget for this, or what we say, 20 for the thing? Yes. You can't, like, he doesn't need the $20 million. He can deliver in both of those equally well, with minimal amounts almost, of money. He almost works better in this space. Well, okay, you just stole my thunder, mm-hmm. exactly. You almost wonder if maybe the $20 million should have just gone to P&A and choosing a better date for the thing than what they did because this movie, you cannot tell that it's done on the cheap. This film introduces something that I know you like. So there's a, a, a there's like five or six things I know Matt loves in film, ones that inappropriate, like... Oh yeah, adolescent and like bad role model love it relationship. Mm-hmm. But one of the things you love, you love this in film because it keeps the pace going, is the ticking clock element. Tell, tell me what that idea you had about turning the Gulf Fire around 180 degrees and flying off to Canada. What did you do to me, asshole? My idea, Pliskin. Something we've been fooling around with. Two microscopic capsules lodged in your arteries. They're already starting to dissolve. In 22 hours, the cores will completely dissolve. 
inside the cores or a heat-sensing charge. Not a large explosive, about the size of a pinhead. Just big enough to open up both your arteries. I'd say you'd be dead in 10 or 15 seconds. What do you think of this? Your summation of that is so spot on that I actually put it in the notes as we were watching the film. Mm. You know me. Mm-hmm. So it's it's twofold here, right? Because yep. it's you got to get him out in time so that he can make the summit to deliver whatever message is important to avert or stop World War Three, Or your heart's going to explode. That's the first one. And mm-hmm. the second one is, mm-hmm. and if you don't also do that, then these veins in your neck are going to explode with these devices. We've just put it in its curtains for you. So you actually have two fuses lit and mm-hmm. lit at the same time Yes, that are both ticking down. And then they're going to do a really good job of portraying it quite simply mm-hmm. with this rather hulking bulky watch that he wears. That is the countdown to the explosion mm-hmm. of those devices. And here's the thing. They yeah. don't even give him a full 24 hours. Yeah. He's like at 22 hours at this point. And then by the time they dick around and get him into the Gulf fire, it's like 18 hours by the time he gets down the stairs of the World Trade Center, it's like 17, 17 hours. <laughs> like, he's already burned like seven hours of his yeah, 24. He's not even playing with the full deck in this scenario. But I love that because if you're up against it, now you're even more up against it. You didn't even get the full 24 hours to accomplish this task. You have less than that. And you know that Lee Van Cleef is going to follow through on his promise oh, of, yeah. of letting those things explode in Pliskin's neck. And think about Manhattan, Matt. Like, <laughs> where do you even be? Again, to look, I know he's got a radar device, but that goes to hell coming up here in a little bit. Where do you even begin to scour that island within buildings and subways to look for the president of the United States? When you can't ask anyone, like, hey, have you seen the president? Because the person you just asked is a psycho. Yeah, wants to kill you (laughs) or eat you. So you have this huge area with tons of buildings and multiple floors and wreckage and debris and the crazies, as they're called everywhere, who are really crazy because they're out of food because it's the end of the month. Mm-hmm. So they're already in a heightened state of violence. He is a man against an entire city trying to find another man with no help. Yeah, And they do such a good job in this film of creating this desolate wasteland that is so vast. It is essentially looking for a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. But the problem, the haystack... Those are all poisonous quills from the craziest of the crazy that should you prick yourself, it's over anyway. Exactly. You better have a nice set of gloves so that you don't break the skin. And secondly, I guess get to work. Mm-hmm. And he's armed with basically nothing, a, a walkie-talkie that he breaks almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And whatever rounds are in his gun mm-hmm. and then his wits. That's it. I love it because he's got a limited supply then to fend off the forces of evil in this impossible task for the greatest of all stakes, not only his livelihood, but essentially human world survival. Humankind, yeah, exactly. Right. And that's such a, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. That's such a great setup, Jesse. Mm -hmm. There's so many ways that can go. And even when there may not be direct action on the screen at that moment, there Mm -hmm. is in your mind the subconscious realization that time is ticking and everyone is against him. And when he first arrives on top of the World Trade Center and starts ascending or descending, sorry, descending the steps, there's a bunch of weirdos running around in there. They set the standard today. John Mm -hmm. Carpenter sets the tone immediately. Mm -hmm. That is, this dude's in trouble and there is no outs, no safe place to go. It's not going to be easy. Yeah, the, the bridges and the waterways are all mined. They're watching every angle of this thing. Now, it's all very interesting. So he gets into this New York theater. 
I always wondered this. I was like, yeah, if you're stuck in this prison, you would do things to entertain yourselves. They're putting on a vaudeville show at this point. Uh, yeah. Everyone's coming to New York. But then he thinks the presence down here in the bowels, the basement of this theater, and just like straight up walks past this like woman getting like raped by all these people. It's like Snake. We got to talk about Snake Plissken because the only disservice to this film coming out in 1981 is that had it been come out in like 72, 71, he would have fit the perfect mark of that. Popeye Doyle. A Popeye Doyle anti-hero against the establishment character of mm-hmm. that time period. But this is one of the first characters that I could think of. Well, he's your protagonist, but he's doing it on his terms. But he's not, he's kind of the bad guy, too, at the same time. It's, I think it's a great correlation. What you said is so spot on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's since we brought up Popeye Doyle, let's sort of build this, right? Sure. The defining character trait for Popeye Doyle and the French Connection for me is when he's driving in the car and he sees that girl riding the bike in front of him. Yes. He literally pulls her over because he likes her ass. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing you know, they're in bed, bags her, mm-hmm. and then kicks her to the curb, and he's back to chase the bad guy. Yeah. So well, yeah, that's important for film characters too oh, of, that, yeah. of that point. Popeye Doyle, I think, is kind of a landmark film character. Prior to that, you have your Jimmy Stewart's and your Cary Grant's and your Gregory Peck's, and they're all really good-natured people. Yes. And then you get to this, and you're like, "Who is this guy?" And he's our hero. He, this is who the world's hopes are pinned on. Mm-hmm. It's. We're up, look out. <clears throat> and the thing about it is in the restaurant, we have almost a Popeye Doyle-like moment. Mm-hmm. So after Kurt Russell, Snake Plissken gets out into the dregs of society and the crazies in mass ascend on him. He's in and out of windows and up and down catwalks and up ladders and finally finds a place to hide out in a restaurant to come into contact with his ex-girlfriend. I forget her name. Season Hubley. Season Hubley. Mm-hmm. That's not a name. <laughs> okay, so her. And she's ready to seduce him for a ride out. And I think he's on board. Mm-hmm. And he would probably complete the task if she's not eaten, <laughs> devoured underneath the floorboard <laughs> by the crazies. Mm-hmm. And he mostly, I guess he puts his arm down there to kind of save her, but he didn't really try too hard. And away he goes. But it's the Popeye Dial moment. Like everyone's expendable. Snake, Plis- Snake Pliskin's number one. And. Devil be damned, I'm going to accomplish this for my own benefit. And we're going to see that at the end of the movie as well. Snake Plissken's number one is Snake Plissken, and that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. I think Kurt Russell said it best when talking about the character, and he said, Snake only cares about the next 60 seconds, but then also the 60 seconds that are relevant to him and him alone. There's one moment where that changes a little bit, and I think it adds to the gravity of the team that's assembled later in the film. Go ahead. We'll get to it, and that's when... Adrian Barbeau's character meets her untimely demise. Mm, mm -hmm. He cares about her enough to say, look, man, he's dead. We've got to go. We'll get to this. Okay. But that's the only moment of character weakness or compassion that I think we see from him in the entire film. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. And it works actually because she's presented as kind of a loving, as much as this movie doesn't have any of that, Mm -hmm. compassionate, civilized character. And I think, they kind of have a thing, especially if it's Kurt Russell or the brain, which is Harry Dean Stanton, and she somehow <laughs> hitched her wagon to the brain. <laughs> Score one for her, not. And here's this hyper-masculine Kurt Russell, mm-hmm. and she is playing to the hyper just by what she's wearing, Jesse. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. boobs yeah. everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that's playing to the desires in this ultra-savage, 
ultra masculine world. And you get that moment where he's like, look, come with me. And then unfortunately she's not going to, cause she decides to protect them all. Yeah. But the, other than that moment, and that's actually pretty well constructed. Mm-hmm. He's per- pretty selfish for the super. Major- majority of the film. Well, and what does he want her for? Cause she's attractive. Yeah, that's it. Right. Exactly. So it's even kind of selfish. Like you said, the next 60 seconds. Yeah. I thought he said that really well. Yeah. So we get to the New York public library, which is the Ghostbusters library. But instead of ectoplasmic residue and spooks and specters, this is the lair of brain played by Harry Dean Stanton filmed in the interiors of the US, USC student library, John Carpenter's alma mater. Like they let him go film down there and brains like the oil baron of New York. He had like an oil rig in, in, in there. So he barters on gasoline for the vehicles in this setup like there's just little things peppered and they don't explain them they're just like this is all very interesting so again continuing it's mm-hmm. well written let's not do the subtext and the backstory just give them a line or two about where they are now mm-hmm. how is this guy refining oil in new york city yeah in 1997 mm-hmm. aren't you glad 1997 didn't turn out like that <laughs> oh big time we just had doc martens that's all it was yeah not nearly this bad. I was more excited for the Matthew Broderick Godzilla to come out. My life was very simple. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I loved that movie when it came out. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> but that's such a great way to write that character. How has he ascended to some whatever position of power? And like the name, the brain, mm-hmm. he's not some mastermind. Yeah. He's this double crossing jerk. Well, he doesn't even do his own fighting when they're in the <laughs> in the car later. It's he's this woman. He's being yanked, and he's like Maggie, and she has to do the shooting. He doesn't even hold, he holds the gun like this and gives it to her. I love it. Mm-hmm. Why is he? He's not smart. He's not able to defend himself. Do you like Harry Dean Stanton? Heck yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, I yeah. love him in Alien. He's the only thing that I like in, in sixteen or uh, Pretty in Pink. Mm-hmm. I hate that movie, but I love him in there. Yeah. Harry Dean Stanton doesn't have a bad performance. He's really good in Cool Hand Luke. You ever seen Paris, Texas? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard Harry Dan Sturton, Harry Dean Stanton sing? Mm-hmm. Man, that dude has a set of pipes too. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Good, good, good casting choice here. And he would show up again in Christine. This is why I like Carpenter right. again. He's got actors that are in this film, like Tom Atkins was in The Fog. Uh, Charles Cyphers, who's like Secretary of Defense, mm-hmm. was Sheriff Brackett in Halloween. And then he takes some of these, like he has the obvious career with Kurt Russell, but then yeah, Harry Dean stands in Christine and he uses the same, like there's a uniform. The, the, the only filmmaker I can think of that's doing that today is actually Christopher Nolan. I was going to say Nolan, right. He's doing the same thing, which is, it's awesome. You got, if you work well with someone, work with them again. Look, it speaks to how likable Carpenter was on set because if they didn't like him, they wouldn't keep going oh, back. You'll work with that guy again. Yeah. And he <clears> launches <throat> the careers of Kurt Russell and Jamie Lee Curtis. That alone, the 80s don't exist maybe without those two. Then they're still relevant today. Right. Yeah. The staying power of this man is immeasurable. Let's talk about the Duke of New York because the very next scene is, let me back up a bit. So Brain has the map grid layout of all the mines and uh, on the on the bridges, and he knows where the, the president is. He's being held at this train station. So he's going to take him there. And he's going to like, they're going to like barter and help each other out. But then here comes the Duke of New York played by Isaac Hayes in his Cadillac (laughs) with the the chandeliers and the the disco ball. Like his entrance is, and they're playing, you said it, the Nazareth hair of the dog, Mm -hmm. but it's like this. 
and it like, dude, the oh, it's so awesome. This is like one of my favorite sequences. And he just comes in like a boss, shirt open, medallions, sunglasses at night before Corey Hart. <laughs> Just like rolling in like a boss and... Well, now you're messing with the son of a bitch. <laughs> exactly. Literally. Yeah. And Isaac Hayes is an absolute son of a... Right? In yeah. this film. Mm -hmm. And they do not take any shortcuts in telling you mm -hmm. the Duke mm -hmm. is in the house. Yeah. He has shan not one chandelier. Two. Doesn't he have one on the back too? Then he has one on the back and then he has... The and a tassel. And a disco ball inside. So the, the car has a like a gold, like a silver tassel, three chandeliers and a disco ball from the rear view. God, like that, that car would be a bitch to drive. You'd be getting glare like from every direction. <laughs> right. And hydraulics too. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And they get out of the car and it's like, doo -doo -doo, and it's almost like a little bit of a shaft nod there in the music score. It's awesome. It's great. It's it a great awesome. intro. There's your kind of other villain of the film, but now we're kind of in a race of the clock to get to the president before, before they find out, you know, where they're going and, you know, I think we do something interesting here because then he's limping for the rest of the film. Pliskin takes an arrow to the leg, rescues the president. Literally, he's limping the rest of the film. Like, this is like the Bruce Willis um, got glass in my feet moment for this film. Like, let's wound the hero to increase the stakes on top of the ticking clock. Such a good technique. I couldn't have said it any better. Mm -hmm. So then we lose a significant amount of time. We went down from 12 hours to like four being knocked out unconscious. Yeah, he gets caught by the Duke, and I think he bashes him with a crowbar, right? <sighs> yeah, that, that, Ouch. that was pretty brutal. Who are you? <laughs> I said, who are you? <laughs> Snake Pliskin, Duke. The man sent him in here. Something's going down. We need him. <clears throat> Snake Pliskin. I've heard of you. How many times do they tell him that in the film? I've heard of you. Everybody's heard of Snake Plissken. Even Ernest Borgnine watching that vaudevillian show recognizes yeah. him. So they, his, they his, always tell him the, 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 after like, hey, I heard, heard you were dead. They all think he's been like dead for years. How smart this is to have Isaac Hayes obviously cast <clears throat> in an Afrocentric role as the Duke of the city lording over it and sort of a a pimp-like kind of way. Mm -hmm. And then Harry Dean Stanton, as the brain addresses the envoy of the man as Snake Plissken, is so smart because there's almost a social construct that they're building for the Duke in this, which then creates what this area is, essentially, in real history, Australia. This is Australia. Yeah. Here's all of Britain's criminals. Go to this island. You all can figure out whatever the hell you're going to do. Just get out of our hair, and they create this society. Mm -hmm. You said it so well when you were watching it. I love the class system in this movie. Yeah, you have the crazies in the sewers, and then you have the street level, and then you have whatever the Duke is. And even his version isn't pretty, but it's like the tippy top. It's a feudal structure that they've created in the society that is being rebirthed mm. in that's, that's good. a metropolis of, well, Gotham or New York. Mm-hmm. And I love that the brain addresses this is the envoy of the man. Yeah. That is such a loaded word yeah. to the Duke. Mm -hmm. And especially, like, if the Duke was Richard Roundtree, it would probably work. If the Duke was um, Sidney Poitier, it wouldn't be the same. But Isaac Hayes being a this is the envoy of the man to Isaac Hayes is loaded, man, yeah. and so smart to John Carpenter for making that choice in this cast. An interesting cast. I don't think Isaac, other than playing the chef on South Park, yeah, 
I don't think he's ever really been in much. Music, man. Yeah, that was kind of like his career. Right. So we lose all this time, and then now we're kind of, you know, giving... He's the chef on South Park? Yeah. I didn't know For that. a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So now we have this kind of play, this ultimatum between the derelicts of New York and the United States Police Force, where they're like, okay, we're going to give you your president back, but this is what we want. We want out of this jungle. And so now we're like, man, who's going to budge first? And like, they're about to go in, but Pliskin's there. They think he's dead. They don't know what's going on, but the clock is literally ticking at this point. What did I teach you? Uh, you, you are Duke of New, New York. You're a uh, hey, number one. I can't hear you. <laughs> you are the Duke of New York. You're a hey, number one. Let's talk a little bit real quick about the Duke's like crazy henchman. His name is Romero. Man, they like plucked that guy out of some other movie and put him in this thing. But man, he's like creepy in this thing. Yeah. Um, there's a couple things. That henchman of the Duke's we see pretty early on with the finger of the president. Mm-hmm. And then you also get, and they can either rewind it or you could play it again. The delivery of those lines from Donald Pleasance is pure Donald Pleasance. Is he scared? Is that bad acting? I don't know what that is, but I closed my eyes just to listen to it and not try to see the image as we're replaying the sound. It's not how I would scream or expect to scream, hear an actor scream, if you're at gunpoint, (laughs) chained to a wall with this briefcase on your arm. It's His delivery is... So unique. Mm-hmm. You and are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. <laughs> can you play it again? <laughs> Let's do it. What did I teach you? Uh, you, you are Duke of New, New York. You're uh, a number one. I can't hear you. <laughs> you are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. And I shot him six times. <laughs> From stuttering and stammering to not stuttering and stammering, but still having the same pantameter to deliver it. Ooh, good. It's weird. He's, <laughs> he's, he's so weird. I love it. It works perfectly in a strange film. He's a perfect... Like, there's no way Donald Pleasance is the, pre, is the president, except in John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Yes, exactly. Donald <clears throat> Pleasance is not even in the cabinet. Donald Pleasance is like... The mailroom guy. Yeah. <laughs> the, the mail clerk. Except in this film, and it, it works in some weird way. In a weird way. That's that's very well said. Yeah. So now the clock's ticking, and then Snake has to go through this, like, gladiator match, and he's got this iconic, like, snake tattoo on his stomach. It's like a cobra, and you see, like, obviously this is like a penis joke, but, like, the tail's his penis. Oh, yeah. This very phallic tattoo. <laughs> yes. Just that's where it's leading to. It's kind of genius, actually. <laughs> it is genius, right? <laughs> but he's got to get into this. That Cobra's about to strike Adrian Barbo. <laughs> exactly. He's got to get into this, like, baseball rudimentary gladiator match with this big burly dude. And, man, when they bring the the nail bats out, and, yeah, it's like, wow, we're getting serious here. So and, can I say something about that? Mm-hmm. I think for as outlandish as this film might be, and, you know, it's fiction, whatever, it's rooted, I think, in some historical elements that give it an accessibility or a familiarity. We already talked about the conference at Yalta. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the feudal structure. We are literally watching the Duke, that's Isaac Hayes, and the bread and circuses of the Pax Romana. This is at the Colosseum. 
with let's entertain my crazies. This society still sucks, mm. but I'm going to entertain you for a couple hours. There you go. And I couldn't help but think watching this movie, how wide ranging the influences from this film would be on other things. Like if you can't see in gladiator, the influence from this scene or as crazy as it sounds in thriller by Michael Jackson mm-hmm. coming out of the sewer to yeah. backlit heavy fog to the warriors. Mm-hmm. The Duke's henchman is the leader of one of the gangs in the warriors. Mm-hmm. It just seems so germane to influential films going forward because they created such a cool environment. Yeah. Here's Isaac Hayes as the Duke on this elevated platform mm-hmm. introducing the two gladiatorial combatants. And Kurt Russell is way undermanned because the dude that shows up is hulking. Seven foot. And hairy. Yeah. Hair everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> that guy doesn't need a sweater in the winter because his back will cover him. so gross. <laughs> it is gross. But perfect, right? Exactly. And that dark beard that's cut weird. Oh, my God. And, like, we were watching it. I loved your response mm-hmm. when they have the trash cans as shields and those baseball bat with nails in them. Yeah. And that guy is just beating him down, and you're just like, oh, you said, oh, my God. Yeah. He's just crushing Feels him. like it hurts. And that trash can's not going to stop those nails from any kind of penetration. Exactly. It's aluminum, man. Mm-hmm. But he gets one up on him, and he takes a nail bat to the to the groin and then to the back of the head. Ooh. And we talked about, too, Kurt Russell played, played some ball, too. Sure did. Like, Baseball almost became a career for him versus acting. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. But um, yeah, so he's kind of like in his element at this point. And so he gets the best of this guy. He activates the tracer so they know he's still alive. They call off the the rescue mission. And now he's got about, he's got like an hour, like an hour and a half at this point to get the president who's been taken by Maggie and Brain to the World Trade Center to get out. They're going to steal his glider, glider to escape out. And now it's a race against the clock. There's a very simple technique that Carpenter keeps using to keep us interested in the film. And whether it's these throwaway one lines to the backstory of these characters or what you just said right there, they think that Snake Plissken is dead because about 20 minutes into the movie, he broke the walkie talkie that he's using to communicate with Hawk. That's Mm -hmm. Lee Van Cleef that's sort of commissioned this mission to rescue the president. Mm -hmm. So he's been out of communication for an hour or 18 hours in the movie. Yeah. So he has a bracelet on that has a button that he can push that signals I'm ready to be rescued. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the Duke's henchmen has taken that from him in some ver- he, some place in the movie. He's just wearing it as jewelry. And Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so after he kills that guy at ringside, then he takes that bracelet and pushes the button. And the point in all that is not that he pushes the button. It's that every single thing that could go wrong has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the important piece of communication that's going to stop the World War III from <laughs> destroying the world yes. is in the hands of that henchman from the Warriors yep. that's working for the Duke mm-hmm. in his coat pocket. Yeah, It's just everywhere we go, it's one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. Um, it's just really creating conflict for that's the good. audience. That's escalating tension into Act 3, which is what we're in right now. That's exactly. That's really well done. Yeah. So we get to the top of the World Trade Center. They knock his glider off. So yeah, again, literally another thing going wrong. Okay, now that's no way to gone. escape. We can't get out of here the way I came in. We got to use the bridges. I I need brain. He needs me. So like they keep having to work together, even though they can't stand each other. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, we. That's kinda, another story too. Is the brain screwed him in Kansas City four years ago, and we don't know what happened there either. We just know something went south, and they're sour at each other, but they need each other in this scenario, and that's kind of enough for him to not put a bullet in him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's good. So now it's a final chase against the the mind bridges against Isaac Hayes and his Cadillac chandelier that should be the brand name of the car cadillac chandelier yeah and, that's right and everyone dies at this point they hit a mine cabby's gone and cabby had the cassette the creepy warriors guy romero traded that for his hat because you see these people are so primitive and they may as well be caveman like because they're just trading shit that they find in a briefcase because they think Hey, you know, it'd be cool if I traded this with Cabby and I get his hat and he gets this cassette because he likes jazz music. It's kind of Robocopy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Verhoeven and like, I'd, I'd buy that for a dollar. Mm -hmm. Like it's very Robocopy. There's nothing, we're going to trade in nothing because there's just nothing else. Yeah. We're going to wear these things. We don't know what they do, but we like it because we're scavengers. So good. Yeah. Almost pirate-like to an extent. Well said. So Cabby's dead. They're going on the mines, brain steps on one blows himself up and then we get to that point that you mentioned earlier where maggie's like give me the gun i'll i'll take care of this so she decides to protect the president <coughs> and pliskin so she stands in front of the wrecked cab with one of the guns that pliskin has mm -hmm. and starts firing a bunch of shots at isaac's hayes's disco mobile as he's ready to chase the bad guys down and boy she misses he doesn't <laughs> Oh my God, he just pounds her into that car. Mm -hmm. Just front end, whammo. Like, and then we get the looks of the aftermath. And that, that was a pickup shot in Carpenter's Garage. The after, no kidding. The aftermath, yeah. They were like, we need to show like what she looked like. So they just set it up in his garage and like, okay, here's what it looks like. Put her on the ground and got some food coloring and corn syrup and just doused her. That's like doing Ben Gardner's boat in Jaws in like in Sydney Scheinberg's pool in his backyard. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We need one more jump scare. Let's do it this like very efficient way. You know, for a $6 million budget, there's two auto sequences in this film that I think are really important because if you mess it up, it's going to be expensive. That's the station wagon bit where on Broadway, mm -hmm. Pliskin throws it in reverse and backs through the barricade <clears throat> to escape the crazies that are chasing them. That's if you screw that up, that's yep. a lot of money to reset that up. Exactly. And the car's ruined. That's a one shot take. Mm -hmm. And then this one, mm -hmm. if he doesn't hit that dummy properly, then you've destroyed the car. Both of them, the one that hits the one that he hits and the one he's driving. And you've got to put the dummy back in there. This is, one shot, get it right, because we don't have much money. And that's just practice and directorial expertise. Yeah. Yeah, really, very efficient, uh, efficient type well of said. type that's of filmmaking. So they get to the wall now. We're like got like a minute, 30 seconds at this point. Yeah. Get Pleasance up on the wall. And then the Duke comes to just kind of wreck the day. They get in a bit of fisticuffs between him and Pliskin. And not before Donald Pleasance could just weird us out again. I mean, he puts the bullets in the Duke and... Let me see if I can do an impression of it. You are never one. You're the Duke. You're the Duke. You're a number one. And he's just like shouting like a crazy man again. Like it's like he's gone completely AWOL or just like psychotic from this experience. Much like Loomis. Like, you know what I mean? Like Loomis is just as crazy as Myers in those Halloween films. Taunting the Duke in some weird way, which is using the Duke's <clears throat> words against him, but not in the same way it's yeah again it's like you just said it's just weird yeah and like you're right it's like i don't know if it's bad or if it's just like it's it that's hard that's hard to like dissect and di decipher mm -hmm. so but we, awesome but yeah it works it fits the film get to, 
<laughs> you forgot the other thing too, which to his craziness. So Pliskin has rescued the presidents on this crane that's with the this electronic crank. Mm-hmm. The president gets over the wall and he's safe. And then Pliskin's being towed up after kind of knocking out the Duke enough to escape. Mm-hmm. And he stops the crane so that he prays that the Duke won't shoot Pliskin so he can shoot the Duke. Like yeah. this, pre- this president is not a good guy. No, not at he all. He sucks. So we get down to ground level. They're able to get the charges uh, uh, neutralized in his neck, like with literally like three seconds to spare. And we kind of get that final element of the ticking clock. I told you, you can buy that watch on Sideshow Collectibles, like 250 to $300. I thought about it, but man, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if enough people would get it to where it would be. It doesn't worth it. matter if anyone gets it. It's for me. So then uh, we get kind of like our final parting shots. And why don't you set this up? Because I think this is a great moment where Pliskin's like, I just want a moment of your time. President's about to go on a live broadcast in three minutes to. Quell the impending storm of World War III with this really important cassette tape that they have retrieved and play whatever sound is on that that's going to make everything better before he goes on. And I love that they've maked up, like, put some makeup on him to take away the bruises and are giving him a nice shave and have changed his shirt. Pliskin says, can I have a couple minutes of your time here? And he says, sure, what's up? He says, a lot of people died to rescue you. What do you think about that? And Pleasance gives that ridiculous response of like, well, the nation appreciates it. Like, I appreciate their sacrifice. And he's like looking at his face in the mirror while he's giving the delivery. It's like such a middle finger to his question. Doesn't even care. Mm -hmm. And Kurt Russell then, Pliskin just walks away like, this guy's everything that I thought he was. Mm -hmm. But we're not quite done yet, are we? Yeah. The big moment arrives and we're going to play that cassette tape that's going to solve whatever problem because it has some message on plutonium or something. Yeah. Nope. It's one of the cassette tapes from the cabbie's cab, Ernest Borgnine's cab. That's like classical music or jazz that he plays. Big band music. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. Herb Albert shows up Mm -hmm. and he plays it and looks down at like, Oh, that's not the right tape. Cut to Kurt Russell walking away. Remember he has the key to stopping world war three. Yeah. And we see him pull out the tape from the cassette tape, destroy it, and pitch it off to the side in a big middle finger that essentially is like, maybe we deserve what we get, but I'm good Yeah, right now. And the and, film ends. And the film fades out. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. It's, 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 yeah, it's. Carpenter likes that abrupt ending with Kurt Russell, doesn't he? That's <laughs> literally the thing in New York sure, City. He sure does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just yeah, you, you've set up a character very well who's very selfish and in it for himself. And yeah, I'll do this for you if this means I get pardoned and I can do whatever. And, you know, trying to go through and fulfill that a request of him. But then I like this because it's still on his terms. And he's like, he's like, yeah, I know these people. These people suck. They, they, I did the things I did probably because of the establishment in whatever state the United States in is, is at this time. And man, whatever. And you said it's so good, like. I'm good. I'm going to wreck this tape. The U.S. is going to go to shit. The world's going to go to shit. But I'll figure it out. Right, because I'm capable. Yeah. And essentially, the world's already in that place anyway, so what have I lost? It says everything about his character without saying anything. It's all sound and the visual. Just him pulling that tape out of the thing and tossing it. I love it. This is a great way to end the film. Can I ask you a question? Go ahead. Do you like Escape from L.A.? Mm, Not really, because it's the same movie. It's almost like a soft remake of this one, just not like, it feels more lazily made. 
Like to me, that's when Carpenter was like in his down downcline. Last great film I thought he made was in the mouth of madness with Sam Neill. And like that one, it, well, another great idea. And you know, LA has been ravaged by earthquakes and it's no man's land and whatnot. It doesn't hold a candle to this one at all. There's so many potentials for story from escape from New York. We even get one here in this last two minutes of the movie. He walks by Lee Van Cleef and Lee Van, Lee Van Cleef. Let's team up. Do you have that sound? No. Um, it's like, are you going to kill me? And he's like, no, nah, I'm too tired. We'll do it later. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you're not going to kill me, we'd make a great team. Mm-hmm. I'll, possible, I'll, I'll play that at the end of the episode. Okay. Yeah. The possible creation of that team between the two of them speaks to infinite revisitations of this iconic character, Snake Plissken, that we all want more of. Mm-hmm. So we have all the backstories. We have what the state of the world is now. We have prequels, and you know I'm not a fan of prequels, but I want to see all of the ones that we've spoken about here. We have potential adventures on the horizon, and we get what we get with Escape from L.A. Ah, man, there were so many ways this could have gone, and I'm not even saying I wanted a sequel from Escape from New York, but there were a lot of ways that that could have gone. Mm -hmm. I just think it's, I'm with you, Yeah, a bit of a disappointment. It could have gone so good. Now, before we get into our ratings of the film, this is something we started in the last couple of weeks, but now we have more official names for it. So this is going to be something that we're going to roll with here just to kind of reflect on the film before we rate it. Now, you know, we got the whole bourbon, whiskey, liquor theme going on. So what better way than to kind of look at that? So when I say, what's your favorite tasting note of the film? I'm talking about your favorite scene sequence. Matt, what's your favorite tasting note of Escape from New York? It's one of two. Okay. So let me give you the one that just barely missed, and then I'll give you the one that won. Okay. The gladiatorial scene between Pliskin and that hulking brute in the arena. When he takes that bat that's got nails in it and clocks that dude in the back of the head, mm-hmm. I audibly said, oh, my God. Yeah. That's a brutal death. That's 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 actually my favorite scene. Oh, yeah. Sorry to say. No, no, you said it. Go ahead. That's great. But mine is this. Mm-hmm. You, in your hand, hold the fate of the world on a cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And you destroy it by just sort of tossing it aside. Yes. F everyone except me. Mm-hmm. What? What a bad! What a bad hero! What a great character! Yes. Ooh, well said. And that to me was like, oh my gosh, he just destroyed. I love that he screwed the president because the president's an a hole. Yeah. But golly, there's not another way that he could have done right by humanity, but no, it's Snake Plissken. He's not going to do right by humanity. So that's mine. Okay, excellent. And instead of doing the what the fuck moment of the film, what better way than to call that the... I need a shot. Because what is that from? It's from Troll 2. It's oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my God. I need a shot because I don't know what I just watched. It's either the most surprising, flabbergasting, just shocking moment of the film. What is that for you that you need to take a shot? Adrian Barbo's bloody corpse on the high, oh, on the road. Okay, There's no way I needed to see that. Thank yeah. you. I'm glad I did. Yeah. I got it. That okay. thing careened into her at about 85 miles an hour. <laughs> Excellent. I love. That's it for me. Okay. Excellent. Mine's the Duke's arrival. Not in like, like, shocking in a bad way, but like in a man. I want to have a shot with the Duke of New York if he's so badass like that. Heck yeah. Yeah. And now, um, instead of saying like best performance or who was like the, like the, the the A player of this uh production, who was the master distiller of this film? Oh my gosh. You want me to go first? Yeah. 
easily for me, Master Distiller. Kurt Russell's great. This is great Carpenter direction and writing. I love this soundtrack in this film. Easily my favorite Carpenter. And you're talking about a man that did Halloween, The Fog, Big Trouble in Little China, like all these great scores. This one rocks on a different level for me. Yeah, I mean, I could probably do the Carpenter thing too, but I'll be contrarian here just for entertainment purposes. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go with Isaac Hayes. Okay. He is exactly who I want as the overlord of this debaucherous dystopic society. It's perfect. Um, from the chain that hangs down his neck to his bald head to the pimp mobile that he drives in that I love is a Cadillac that they just bastardize. So great. Oh, so that's what I would say. So I'm going to give it to Isaac Hayes, although Kurt Russell is unforgettable in this role. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So I think time now more than ever, now that we set that up as a bit of like a palate cleanser, let's get into our ratings of the film. We have Rock Gut, Well Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Matt, I'll let you go first. Top Shelf. Maybe the most enjoyable film I've watched in months. Really? Yes. Again, we talked before. Mm -hmm. It had been a couple a couple years since I'd seen this movie. Yeah. Exponentially raised. <laughs> okay, yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was really enjoyable. Like, I love that the movie is okay with just being entertainment, but done well. It doesn't have to be some vast, grand message, but it can still be smartly done with a, a, an historical basis, a historical basis. Mm -hmm. That works for me. It's just a good watch. We talked about it during the middle. I think I might do this with my kids in class. Yeah. Um, there's not a bad moment. It's wildly entertaining. Yeah. It's Carpenter at the master of his craft. I love that he did it for $6 million. It's oh, high concept. It's great. It's been like the lesson the last two weeks is like what you can do with just no money. <laughs> exactly. If you have someone at the helm mm -hmm. that's creative, yeah, wildly creative and unique, it's a really good film. Mm -hmm. So yeah, top shelf for me. Excellent. Not even a question. Sure. I Maybe this might like, what are we like episode 65 ish? 63, 62. I think if I was to go back and look at maybe mm, the top 10 films we've ever done, this would certainly make the top half of those top 10. This awesome. is a superb movie. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Let's hear yours. I'm going to go top shelf. Well, I'm a little, mine's a little more biased than maybe, than maybe yours. So yours is probably like an even better rating than, than mine will be. But you know, I mentioned, like you might be a fan of Carpenter or something. Exactly. Huh. Like, okay. cause like, look, cause like the first time I saw this, I was like, mm, it's, it's not the most action packed film I've seen. Like stuff from the early, like, you know, if you want like first blood or any of those things, like you're going to get more bang for your buck for that one. But like the ability to do a pretty big idea for next to nothing and to have to stretch a budget so much mm -hmm. to make it happen again for any aspiring filmmakers or screenwriters out there, I can't, you know, say enough the films of carpenter that's almost more of a film school than paying ninety thousand dollars and going to a film school can give you the, the stuff you'll learn listening to the commentaries and the behind the scenes features of how to do things just for nothing watch assault on precinct 13 watch mm -hmm. the fog watch this uh and get yourself some glow in the dark tape <sighs> literally right i'm not trying to be smart ass like looked I great yeah. yes I think you just, you, you'll learn so much. And, and for myself, an aspiring filmmaker, you know, I wanted to compose my own music and I did for some of the film projects that I made, you know, writing them and directing them. And to me, this was an important view. And then it introduced me to Kurt Russell at like when I was like in middle school and I was like, man, who is this guy? Like, he's great. And then that was a branch off into the thing and then big trouble and 
Backdraft and like all these other great film, Tango and Cash. Well, I mean, that one's not so great, but like he's great. Like Kurt Russell has like a natural charisma to him that's yeah. that's unteachable. Right, you just have it. Mm-hmm. And talk about a guy that's been acting since he was six in films. He was in like I think it was Blue Hawaii with Elvis Presley. And he's like 68 now, and he's still making films. Like, that's not many people can do that. It's a top-shelf film for me. It's not my favorite Carpenter film. Uh, maybe one day we're going to talk to what I think is the best Carpenter film. But, uh, yeah, it's on the horizon. But, yeah, this is a great experience, too. Yeah, I think you'd really like it if you can if you can find it. There's a great Blu-ray. The one we watched from uh, Scream Factory is uh, excellent. Looks great. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's wrap up this episode with uh, our typical flight question. Anthology track seven. <laughs> that It rocks. It really does. It's, it's pretty darn good. It's really awesome. It's sure. just like it. Just drive down the road listening to that music. Mm-hmm. So the nightcap question. Talking. This is the first Kurt Russell film we've done, which is uh, I was very excited about. So what better way to talk about our favorite Kurt Russell performances? I'm going to let you go first. Wow, uh, this was not easy. Um, there's a ton of movies that he's made. Mm-hmm. I do like Tango and Cash. I think that's a different departure from him because that's a little bit more Don Johnsony version of Kurt Russell. <laughs> it is, yeah, a uh, Miami Vice ish. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two ones out there that we talked about this morning. I'm not going to touch on either one of those because you're going to. I'm going to go with Herb Brooks and Miracle. First of all, I really love that story. Mm -hmm. This is such a cool sports moment. I love sports films. That's accurate. It's really what happened. Mm -hmm. It's not the Hail Mary with no seconds on the clock that has three pitches and the diet, like, you know, remember the Titans, Disney bullshit. Like, it's not that. Is that a, like a defining sports moment for you in your lifetime? Oh, my God. Yeah. I remember watching that and to, to Al Michaels mm-hmm. and to the U.S. beating, taking down David and Goliath. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. There's two of them. Can I just tell you? Yeah, good. It's that one and the Chargers versus the Dolphins and Kellen Winslow being carried off the field in 1981 oh, in the playoff game. Big time. Those are the two. That's why I like that team. But Kurt Gibson. Yeah, that was a big one. You know, the funny thing about that is my buddy was watching that game with me that night. And, you know, Kurt Gibson limps out, limps out and he was a Jimmy. He was, you know, Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, if he hits a home run, I'm going to shit myself. And on the <laughs> next pitch, man, he takes him yard. And I like jump at her. And I was like, all right, get some toilet paper. Legendary. Legendary. But those is monumental as that shot is by Kirk Gibson. Those mm-hmm. it still pales in comparison to those other two. Sure. Um, I just, I was 80, I was seven, man. Mm-hmm. And to have that movie done in such a great way. And he's so good as her Brooks in that film. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fruit I could pick off the tree. That's not even low hanging. There's way more good roles than it is like, but I'm going to go with today. Yeah his portrayal as the iconic and to her Brooks and those young men yeah. that took down everything that was important in 1980 mm-hmm. that had such a social context with political beliefs too. Yeah. God bless those guys and God bless that film and God bless you, Kurt Russell. Uh, What's yours? If you're indulging in Disney plus, I think that film's currently on their miracle. You can check it out. Go see it, man. Like it's Disney. So it's got a sweet ending, but only because the movie, the story had a sweet ending. Yeah. Yeah. 
Awesome. Okay. Again, bias, like, of, of all. Like, I thought about, you know, Jack Burton is legendary. Like, that's one of the two. I wanted to almost have him in my group, and I'd be like, oh man, like, this is too much going on right now. Yeah. I have to pick, you know, RJ McCready from The Thing. And yeah. I think the most understated, the effects are great, the direction's great, the writing's amazing. You know, just everything about it is just so top notch. But I think, I don't think it's understated, but Kurt Russell's character in that film, he's just a pilot who's along for the ride and he's just taking them to and fro. He's not the smartest guy in the room. There's a lot of more brainy people going about doing research, but somehow he rises to the ascension of leader amongst those men. And the way he dissolves tension and the way the tension gets put on him and suspicion, he plays it so well. And man, that guy can grow a beard. <laughs> Boy, you, you no joke. A good one. Yeah. I'd have to like start now and it may be by December next year. It would be like to his capacity. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's got to be that one. And again, talking about parting shots that you, you set up earlier, like him and Keith David there at the end is, is just so well done. I love the thing. And it's primarily because of Kurt Russell. He's the only one credited on that poster right there, right. starring Kurt Russell and then into screenplay. <laughs> and Wilford Brimley's in that movie with him. Exactly. I'll and kill you. <laughs> I'll kill you. <laughs> no dogs making a thousand miles to the coast. That's so good. Yeah, I got to pick that one. I can't wait till we do that film because there's a lot going on in that film. That's like a a pre-AIDS film before AIDS was in the social construct of like blood contamination, mm -hmm. an all-male ca uh, cast, and effects that are just off the wall. That'd be a fun cast to do that would be movies that didn't ever ascend the place they should have because of timing. Good. Yeah. That'd be a good one. Yeah. Not to let the cat out of the bag, but that movie Fuck lost e. because Fuck of... E. T. Yeah, exactly. Because of Reese's Pieces. <laughs> Whatever, man. If we do an overrated cast, that film has to go in there because I just... I can't do that one. Could I put one in there too then? Fight Club. Okay. I kind of like Fight Club. No, I like it too, but wildly overrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of other Fincher films I like. But there. Oh, th this is great. This has been a great episode. A nice pivot from Bond. Man, I was so prepared for Bond. Just know in November you're going to get an awesome Goldfinger episode because I was I was ready. I was guns blazing. Gun I had a whole theory that I couldn't wait to lay on you, man. Yeah. And it just, I don't want to even let it out of the, the, the bag because it's going to happen sooner or later. But I had a whole thing I wanted to lay on you. Mm -hmm. Not this week. Yeah. But this is good. This is kind of kind of fun, and so let's set up what we're doing next week. Probably one of your best films of the two thousands was it number three? Four? I, th I think it was number two or three. Holy smokes! Of the decade, yeah. yeah. It's uh, yours. Go ahead, and I'll let you have it. So yeah, next week we're looking at another dystopian future, and and talk about yeah getting in late again. Like we don't really see the initial conflict. We're just dealing with the aftermath and what people are doing. And essentially, a two hour chase film. Right. We're doing Mad Max Fury Road. Matt, uh, in between doing Escape from New York research, I was watching some just B-roll of them filming in Australia. I don't know how this film was made. It's incredible just practically what they were able to do just with stunt work is incredible. I can't wait to talk about all that. And, you know, we got Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron and George Miller, this 70-year-old man making like maybe the premier action film of the two th 2010s. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to to talk about this one. You might have to come over and watch it. I got this one on 4K, and it's, man, it's a sight to behold. So this movie's rock gut for you, it sounds like. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I'm excited. I'm only going to come over and watch it 
okay. if you dress up like a war boy with plenty of fire and a guitar. I'll be painted white for Sweet. sure. Sweet. And I got the silver paint to spray in my mouth too. <laughs> Great. But you got that coming for you next week. So yeah, let's send it off. So cheers, Matt. <laughs> cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I'm going to go wait on the side of the street because maybe, just maybe if I wait long enough, the Duke will come by if I play that music and then I can have that shot with him. Oh, man, that's great. Maybe we can talk him into coming and doing a screening of Shaft with us. Ooh, that'd be awesome. Bring the Duke in to watch Shaft, and then we can have the drink with him that you talked about earlier. Excellent. That sounds like a good afternoon. Excellent. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It's been a lot of fun, and we'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. Tune in and leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. Escape from New York is property of Avco Embassy Pictures, International Film Investors, Goldcrest Film International, and MGM Pictures. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, call me Snake. I'm too tired. Maybe later. I've got another deal for you. I want you to think it over while you're resting. I want to give you a job. We'd make one hell of a team, Snake. The name's Pliskin. <laughs>